Hello there, I'm Stefan Coritar and welcome to the Tech Talk Podcast. This is the show where you can discover insights and valuable information about how entrepreneurs build their startup in the tech industry and the way the technology world works. A collection of open talks about technology and creativity, people, experiences and life around tech business ecosystems. Everything with the main goal to help you get inspired, get started, dream big and build amazing businesses. Today, I have a special guest, and his name is Gerald Polak. Gerald Polak is an associate at Vienna-based venture fund Capital 300. Capital 300 is a European Series A venture capital fund backing disruptive technology companies run by ambitious entrepreneurs. Capital 300 has established innovative co-investment partnerships with global leaders in venture capital and together with the best VCs in the world like Sequoia Capital, Index Ventures, and Draper Associates, Capital 300 provides portfolio companies with a substantial leverage for conquering the US market and building a significant global presence. Gerald has previously worked for Apple's Western Europe sales department and engaged with the international tech and entrepreneurship scene while completing a double master's degree at London Business School and Fudan University, Shanghai. Enjoy this conversation and remember to subscribe and share the podcast. Hello, Gerald, and uh, thank you very much for joining the conversation and uh, responding to my invitation to join Tech Talk. Hi, thanks for having me. Gerald, um, I know it was, you know, uh, a very hot summer <laughs> this, this summer. Actually, you know, the degrees are going higher and higher, but uh, I just want to ask you, what was some really cool stuff that you've done this summer? Like maybe some, some things from your vacation, if you went to the vacation, when did you, did you win? So actually in Austria, the summer was super rainy. So it was actually one of the coldest summers in the last years. <laughs> um, but so I went to Italy um, to meet some uh, friends from university there. Um, and we had a really good time there, great weather. And maybe one of the really cool things there was, uh, that we, we went to Bologna and uh, went to a, to a library in Bologna who had like, they had super old books. And uh, the oldest one was from 1503. And they had a, one original book from Da Vinci uh, about like um, certain features of water. Super interesting. Features of water? Yeah, it was like certain properties of, of like how water reacts that Da Vinci was writing. like. Mm-hmm hundreds of years ago. Um, so really, really cool. They had another one from Galileo Galilei, which I think was also super interesting. I think, what, what was this? Uh, some, I mean, some, some very early days of uh, scientific. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, okay. What, what, time, what type of pastas do you like from Italy? Um, what type of pasta? Actually, I really uh, love uh, carbonara, like spaghetti carbonara. Um, but I would even prefer pizza over pasta, I think. And seafood. Do you know that Italians actually don't do pizza as uh, the rest of the Europeans or the world does? I mean, they have this different thing uh, around pizza, uh, or it, it doesn't kind of doesn't exist in 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 some some places. And the entire concept of pizza has been promoted and marketed globally by the the Americans. So yeah, I, I actually know that, but I like the, the like the crispy pizza of Italians uh, better than like the more of like the fatty dough of American pizza. Yeah, I'm on the same page with you. I don't like <laughs> that fatty dough. Um, what what was like something really interesting that maybe happened to you in the last days and um, has wowed you and you could share with the audience. So actually yesterday, I was at the very first physical startup pitching event uh, since the start of the pandemic, which was the opening of the office from the plug and play um, like hub here in Vienna, yeah. uh, which oh, has the topic opened. of, yeah, they, they opened their office and they had their first kind of like live event again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really also impressed by how well organized it was in terms of like adhering to all safety standards for your health. So you had to do like a temperature check when going in and like sanitizing your hands. Like it was really, really well organized and it felt really good to be back around people uh, and startups and the energy in a room where startups are pitching. Um, And I feel like 
during the pandemic, one one thing that I missed was actually actually uh, these these kind of events. And I'm really glad to have finally the chance to to go to some again. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm missing those times really bad. Um, and we don't have that yet in, in in Cluj. I think also depends on you know the COVID numbers and everything in each country. So we don't have that. And uh, I kind of um, what's that word? I'm uh, kind of jealous of you, <laughs> <laughs> actually, that you have the opportunity to go to these kind of events uh, already or back again. So that's nice. I'm happy for that. I didn't knew that plug and play was um, opening in Vienna. That's cool. I had a conversation yeah, with with a lady um, back. Uh, um, back when I was in San Francisco at the Startup Grind conference, we had the conversation with them and they kind of explained their business model and they how they work and so on. So, and I remember that they had some pretty pricey prices <laughs> <laughs> uh, in order oh, yeah. for, you know, for you to get that franchise and open in another country. Mm-hmm. So that's, but that's nice. And, and one additional really cool thing about the, the opening of Plug and Play yesterday and the pitches was that even one of our portfolio companies, Asaya, Mm-hmm. Um, was there to pitch. Um, so it was really nice to see actually one nice. of our portfolio companies at the office opening of Plug and Play in Vienna. Nice. We're going to talk more about them uh, definitely along uh, along the discussions. Um, but before going into more like businesses and business uh, subjects and, you know, venture capital and how, um, how and what you do at Capital 300, um, I just want to dive in into some kind of personal stuff I know we we know we we talked about it like uh, in our in our in our meetings quarterly meetings and things, um, but I know you like to compete, right? Um, and uh, I just you know want you kind of to ask, I mean to to answer this question, like where does your passion for rowing comes from, and why did you quit? I know that you quit, but can you tell us why? <laughs> <laughs> so I mean the passion I would say was building up slowly, of course, like with the majority of all sports, you, you started when you're young uh, and you do it like um, just a couple of times a month or a week um, with like your friends and it's just fun. Um, and then after time, so we, we really pretty, pretty early, we became quite successful in the competitions, um, which really was a thing of like three friends and me um, in the rowing club. Um, and then we started to do it more seriously. Um, some, of course, along the way, they, they churned and stopped doing it and uh, had other priorities in life. Um, and I kind of really got into it. Um, so I, I got more and more competitive. Uh, I had more successes. Uh, and therefore, I increased the number of numbers of training. I, I got into like the next kind of group of, um, of people and, and trainers and then into the national team. Um, so I think it was it was building up slowly. You know, I didn't start from one to, uh, from from zero to one hundred, um, but I started slowly and I got more and more into it. And uh, I think that the most beautiful thing about rowing is that you are out there in the nature, gliding or, or it feels like flying over the water, mm-hmm. and together with your team in one rhythm, it's like it's really it's like one rhythm. You hear like uh, when you set into the water and when you're at the finish, and it's like just one sound and. It's a really, really nice feeling and, and very meditative, even if it's uh, super exhausting. Um, and you also don't have any smartphone or something like that with you. So when you go running, you have your smartphone with you, listening to podcasts and like music and whatever. But when you're out there on the water, it's just the, your teammates, you and the elements around you. Um, and that, that's really beautiful. Um, coming to the question why I quit, um, quite uh, easy. First of all, I at some point lost a bit of like the fun in rowing because when something gets super, super, super serious, um, you usually stop having that much fun because there's a lot of pressure on you and so on. I, I trained twice a day, seven days a week. Oh, wow. Um, everything was focused on rowing in my life. Like, I didn't go to, like, my grandma's birthday because I didn't want to miss the, the training session and stuff like that. Um, so really, really competitive, really serious. Um, and then I had the ch- chance um, to start working at Apple in Austria. So I decided to quit rowing for focusing on a career. Um, and I actually have uh, never stopped rowing so i'm still doing it um in my free time i'm still and i, I regained the fun of doing it um and um, I'm, I'm still competing in like small national competitions and i have really never regretted the decision to to quit competitive rowing um 
in such a serious manner and focus actually on university and on my career. That, that's great. It's kind of similar maybe to my story in, in kind of uh, in, in some senses and nuances. And that's, that's the one of um, I've been, I've been dancing for a very, very long time. And I kind of shared the same feeling with you that I don't regret quitting dancing, although I kind of continued like a passion doing it going from time to time to different different salsa parties but i was uh, i was dancing professionally folklore so that kind of took nice. a lot of time uh, to, uh, of time from me so yeah i can i can share the same feeling <laughs> <laughs> um but you said you are like uh uh super competitive and um how does how did that help you in terms of your professional career was that something that um helped you and how did you saw that it helped you like i would actually not say that the competitiveness is something that really helped me in my career um i would rather say it's certain kind of learnings from from my time as a competitive rower that that teach me and taught me certain kind of disciplines or like kind of things i like learnings uh, that are helpful in life like resilience uh, how to how to like cope with failure you know you don't mm -hmm. win every race and usually it's not like the winning races that you can build upon to get better it's very often like the ones you lose um because from these races you can really or from these failures you can um draw many learnings um to to improve um and i think that's the main thing i learned so how to how to keep working towards a goal um in the good times but also in the bad times um and also, of course, teamwork. Um, so rowing is team sports. So no one within a team is like the one to blame. And no one is the one who takes all the fame for a victory. It's really, it's a team effort and everyone has a certain role within a team. Mm -hmm. And uh, the team just is able, is just able to really put the best kind of performance out there. Um, if everyone in the team is able to pull their individual best performance as well. I'm curious about that. Uh, and, maybe, and then I'm going to maybe just jump to my next question. Did you had at a particular moment in time, you know, a fight or something as a team, a rowing team? And how did you manage that? I don't know. I'm just guessing if there was some, somebody that was maybe a bit higher egotically and tried to put a fault on somebody or something like that. How did you manage of course that? we had that I, I would say that the the biggest kind of tensions aroused when when there was something not going that well and we had different ideas of how we get back to the track of success mm -hmm. um, and usually people get quite emotional and not very rational when it comes to those situations mm -hmm. um sometimes i think you you have to fight a fight so inter not not like a physical one but sometimes arguments are good you know mm -hmm. as long as you don't get insulting or something like that. people can have different opinions yeah. um and then often it's also about trial and error so there were a couple of situations sometimes the trainer just was saying okay like that's the way how we go and we have, as athletes said like well that's not the way we believe in um and then sometimes the trainer was right sometimes we were right sometimes within the team there were certain kind of discussions um sometimes it was a lot about just like sleeping over it for a night and then going back and say like, okay sorry uh, i was overreacting um I, I was under pressure you know maybe i had some super stressful day at university or school um or with my parents um shouldn't have brought it into the training sorry for that and sometimes it simply was like, okay, I'm, I'm convinced about that. Um, and I'm sure that this is the right way and I would like to try it out. And usually as a team, like we often then said, okay, let, let's try it and uh, build an opinion around it, but be flexible enough in your kind of men, mind, mindset to mm -hmm. change it again um, if it doesn't work. Yeah, that's great. Um, I agree. I mean, the sleeping over it, definitely works for me every single time i mean you get into this like emotional hype um extreme and then you know just sleep over it have a rational process the second day and then have a discussion about it definitely have a discussion about it um so i'm, I'm pretty sure that you've learned a lot of stuff uh in your 
rowing competitions and you know an entire context within that teamwork how was that um i mean not, not maybe compared but i know you've you've studied management at the london business school um I and mean, i'm curious about that experience like could you share some i know top three takeaway take lessons from that and how was that for you so i think sometimes london business school was more competitive than rowing <laughs> because <laughs> because every single person at London Business School was extremely bright um, and everyone was very ambitious. And then there was like the kind of grading scheme, which is a, a distribution curve, like a distributed uh, curve. Um, so even if you could like achieve 98%, it might've been that you just got to be if there were enough people achieving 100%. Ouch, uh, everyone wanted tight. to achieve the 100% and everyone wanted to achieve the 100%. And everyone was willing to go the extra mile. So it was a very um, energetic and very um, like motivating environment, I would say. Um, but the key, key takeaways, um, maybe from like a social point of view, I would say is like the network really is a strong leverage. Uh, so I've never been around such an influential network before i would say um so there were people from all over the world um with uh, different backgrounds and with uh, very different kind of networks and all very strong networks and once you for example want to explore an idea for a startup or whatever you could reach out to whoever is in the london business mm -hmm. school alumni network or, or student body or or even like from the also from the professors and you could ask them for advice and either they had experience or knowledge to give you proper advice, or they knew someone to actually give you that advice. So I think I, that was the very first time I really got the experience what network equity means. And I feel like in, in venture capital, network equity is also one of the very, very important um, things to succeed. A second um, learning probably was actually not different kind of opinions and, and trying to see the world through the eyes from someone else. Um, so we've been 56 different nations, I think, uh, within 240 students. So a lot of different cultures there, um, which I haven't been exposed to uh, during my bachelor's, for example, and how Indians and Chinese and Americans and uh, Brazilians uh, and Germans and Swedish and Austrian people and Italian people see the world differs in certain situations quite a lot. Um, and I think it was a really, really great environment to try to understand the different approach people from different cultures take in different situations. And maybe the third big learning was um, that at the end of the day, it's not so much always about seriousness in life in terms of like, it's not that much about academics, for example, at, at university. Sometimes it's also just about the experience of having fun together um, because that, these are the stories you're going to tell your, like your grandchildren. It's not going to be like, you know, in lecture number five of finance, I've learned uh, yeah. <laughs> what the walk is, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, back then when we went uh, to a trip to, I don't know, like, we went to California for for um, for meeting some companies there and startups there. And then afterwards, we made a trip to Las Vegas. These are like the stories you're going to tell your yep. children about, right? So I think life should, you shouldn't take life too serious. That's something I've learned there as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, connected on, on the seriousness and how you measure life, I just remembered the, the famous tech talk of uh, Clay Christensen. May he rest in peace. Um, he, he was, you know, he was talking about that. How do you measure your life? So everybody who listens, you can go ahead and have a look on uh, on that TED talk. That is really a good TED talk that you, that you you have to watch. And um, also on the international part, having an experience with different cultures, different ways of thinking and perspectives. Um, that's so so super important. And um, I also kind of. Um, took it as a huge value added to me when I started traveling and going to different conferences like San Francisco, London, and meeting all, all, all different people and nuances. And whenever I had an opportunity, I have an opportunity to, to coach whatever one startups from, from this region is that, you know, don't 
think and work from this mindset go travel go see the world and then come back and you know your business plan gonna take another form or and if you're not you know possible to do that just reach out to somebody and start talking right so that's super 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 important definitely Gerald, i just want to dive in into this super important topic that we want to talk today and that is what do you do at capital 300 so Capital 300 is a Series A-focused venture fund. We are based in Vienna with a team of six people. Um, the fund is quite young, so we are in the third year of operations now and have done around 10 investments so far. Um, we are focusing on Germany, Switzerland, Austria, and Central and Eastern Europe, with the Baltics being part for us in terms of the definition, definition of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, so. We are focusing on, in terms of vertical, on everything that is software related. So we have uh, investments in P2P as well as P2C startups, as long as something software um, focused. And we really like startups that have a strong USP within their tech. So they should have something defensible in terms of tech. And our approach is maybe a bit different to like the classical European we see. We always syndicate with uh, leading US and UK venture funds mm-hmm. um, so we have for example a co-investment with uh, sequoia we have one co-investment with index ventures one with paper associates um two now with mike charlton who was the founding partner of mosaic ventures and one with uh, first minute so we believe that the there is a kind of an optimization of value adding from your investors if you have one anglo-american investor who has a strong network in uh, like the US and so overseas and uh, one local European investor who is on the ground here and in close distance to you. So Vienna is basically in flying distance to all these major cities that we are looking into and all the hubs for startups. And uh, that allows us to be helpful here and supportive here on the ground um, with hiring, with networks, with everything that the yeah. startup might need. Um, and at the same time, there is that really strong network from international um, companies and everything that the big US and UKVC can bring along. What would be, like you mentioned, um, a, a really cool, interesting, unique selling proposition. Can you give me some examples on that? What would be like some interesting, unique selling propositions that you've seen in startups and maybe something that you're expecting to see? So I believe that the USP in terms of tech or the business overall can can be very different depending on like the nature of the business because it's SaaS and like an enterprise SaaS or an, a mobile app for for consumers are two very different things. But at the end of the day, innovation is always a certain way of differentiating. No matter if you're a startup or a corporate. Mm-hmm. Once you stop innovating, probably your competition is gonna um, over over ride you, and then so they they probably gonna get the lead if if they keep innovating while while you try to just focus, sell focus on legacy stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so as long as there is a certain degree of innovation, I think uh, a certain USP can be achieved. Okay. Okay. That's. Uh, I mean, that's a very good point in terms of you know, focusing on innovation at least in this sector, technology-based businesses. It's yes. something that you have to do and pursue on a daily basis. Um, and then, of course, in, in in tech, there is also the the potential to protect your IP. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can patent it. And one one other USB can also be um, pace. So if you're fast enough in building a community, for example, if you're a marketplace you will be able to achieve network effects that then give yep. you an advantage over, over your competition that is laying behind. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, what was um, kind of the X factor um, that you've seen in some of the companies that you, not you, but Capital 300 decided to invest? Like, why did they invest in and in which? Like, what, Can you give us one example maybe? At the end of the day, the, the common manner, like the common thing um, 
among all of our portfolio companies, I'd say is like that the teams are always really, really extraordinarily great people. Mm-hmm. They're the kind of people that you love to work with, that have a drive, that want to achieve big. So we all only invest in companies where we believe they can become category leaders on a global scale mm-hmm. in their domain. And uh, these teams are the ones that we believe in that they can achieve it. These are the ones that if there is a crisis, they try to overcome it. These are the ones that are not going to give up quickly and that have big visions on where they want to, where, where they want to go with the, their full team and, and their, their product um, in, the, in the next years. So I think that's like one thing they all have in common. Maybe one thing to, to, to highlight uh, was uh, the investment in Kaya Health, which we did in Q2 this year. Um, and I simply believe that digital health is a really important topic because it also has an, a huge impact on our quality of life. So, if, so in, the, in the case of Kaya Health, they're right now um, helping people with chronic back pain uh, and COPD which is a, a lung um, disease. And there are so many people out there who suffer chronic back pain. Um, I don't know if you yourself also have back pain, but at least I'm pretty sure you're going to know someone within your friends or family um, who has back pain, either due to sitting too much all day long or yep. maybe a bit of overweight. And, and like all these little things we do in our life that are simply not healthy. And so our back really suffers from that. And they have found a way of digitally helping all those pe- all these people with back pain to overcome the pain. And that simply is such a if if you sleep better because your pain uh, like because your, your your pain is less, and if you don't have that constant kind of thing in your mind of thinking, oh well, oh my my back hurts every time you stand up and so on, it really helps you in life to overcome it. I think that's that's something that should be even more emphasized by also investors mm-hmm. um, to to really help those startups and support them um, that have a really positive impact on society and the quality of life in general. I agree. I mean, digital health is something that I'm also looking into in terms of more from a curiousness perspective than other than investing. I'm just looking into what kind of uh, startups are uh, launching over there and even decided, um, not a funny story, but like a sad story maybe, I even decided to make my first investment, a small investment because it was a crowdfunding uh, campaign for a startup from from London. They've been doing for over two years some uh, clinical trials and researches on the uh, psychedelics um, health therapy and mm-hmm. uh, they've kind of patented some kind of sound waves that um, helps you and helps you during that psychedelic therapy helps you to rewire your neurons um, in, in a way I don't remember exactly their their pitch and then your unique selling proposition but being passionate about that part it was such a cool thing to see but they kind of postponed their entire crowdfunding campaign so this is even a good reminder for myself to, to check on them to see what they do, what they're doing. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like a really interesting startup. It doesn't matter if it's like digital health or or any other kind of impact um, startups can have positively on our society. Maybe like sustainability or other other kinds of, of positive impact. I think all of that is really important to to reach the next steps. We have certain big challenges uh, on Earth, and they simply need to be tackled by bold visionaries of uh, the next generation yeah i agree i fully agree on that bold visionaries is something that uh i, I do even have in my new signature um uh, so I, I i really like that <laughs> um what what do you think that um peaked capital 300 inches to start looking at the romanian market what was some things like some key factors as as decision makers in, in that decision so we we have one strong hypothesis about the central eastern european market because there is so much talent really really great talent there um with regards to 
knowledge in physics and uh, math and uh, developing. Um, so we really believe that there is so much potential there. And Romania is one of those markets, but of course, same for Poland uh, and also Ukraine and Bulgaria. There are a couple of markets uh, in Central East and Eastern Europe that have been probably overlooked or underestimated um, in the last couple of years that are really up and coming. And people start seeing due to role models like UiPath, for example, that there is a chance for them with the skills they already have to build something globally impactful and to achieve financial in, independence through that. And uh, it, that you don't just have to be like outsourcing for big US tech companies, but you can build something yourself and you can also compete on a global basis and even have a certain cost advantage because cost of living as of now is, 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 a, is cheaper than in the US, for example. So we simply strongly believe in the talent in Romania, but also in other CE countries to have the skills and the knowledge and the power to build something that is going to last and which is going to be financially successful. What do you think, since uh, we're on, on this topic, what do you think um, CE entrepreneurs, if you had like, you know, pictures submitted, discussions with people from here, and you had the opportunity to maybe uh, have an analogy or com compare. Um, what do you think from a pitch perspective and also from a, let's say, skills per perspective, what do you think like CE entrepreneurs lack and could get on board maybe, you know, co-founders specialize in some, st some stuff? So CE founders are often very humble in the way how they pitch or present, mm -hmm. which in general is, is not negative at all. I mean, it, it's great uh, to be humble. I think uh, very, it's a very good kind of trait of a person to be humble. Um, but looking at like US founders and C founders, US founders are very selly. Like they, they know how to sell and present and they often like to be in the spotlight, you know, like they mm -hmm. have another energy in presenting. Um, and maybe that's something the T founders uh, could improve. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's great that they're like no bullshit guys, you know, like you shouldn't just come up with all the buzzwords that are out there and then um, craft some, some crazy stories that are not really realistic. So of course, a certain degree of um, Humbleness is still good, but they they should have often like a bigger vision and a bolder kind of way of communicating their vision, maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, that's good. Because I kind of have the same feeling that you know, uh, when you say uh, be bolder and have a bolder vision if of communicating themselves, um, I kind of feel the same way that um, CE startups lack kind of this messaging, if I could kind of frame it into one word messaging part and then the energy that you put into the messaging right kind of changes the game when you when you pitch and you present yes i, th I think it simply makes you stand out of the crowd a bit more if you're able to attract kind of the attention through the way how you how you frame things yeah i even do believe that if you're you know, everybody has kind of personality and character. If you are not fit for maybe pitching, get somebody that is, you know, fit for pitching and knows how to pitch. If not, you know, you should, you should train how to pitch um, uh, properly mm, because usually, you know, founders can, can get easily biased that their idea is the best and it's going to be a unicorn and it's going to save the planet, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, also pitching, of course, it's exhausting for founders it's like uh it's not like a sprint it's like a marathon for uh, the majority of them and so of course it's also understandable that it's hard to especially if you're not uh, by nature someone who loves to stand on a on a stage and yeah. give speeches so I, I believe that the majority of founders probably are not the ones who love to tell those stories and, and be in the spotlight because very often they they want to build their product and their business and not be basically slowed down by, by fundraising. 
But at the same time, that's part of being a founder and also CEO. Um, fundraising is part of the whole journey. Um, so even though you, you don't might enjoy it that much, you sh should get comfortable with doing it. Mm -hmm. And then get maybe the proper coaching as you just recommended um, for doing it right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, we're talking about fundraising and startups. What do you think or what should maybe startups pay attention to if they would like to fundraise? What are some key stuff that you would recommend that they shouldn't pass by or miss out on? It, of course, depends on the stage of mm -hmm. the startup because later stage startups, of course, have more kind of KPIs and numbers um, to crunch. But one thing they shouldn't miss out for, for sure is how or why they are the ones who are going to make it. So as said before, the team is super, super important. And why are they the ones who are going to build this massive success within their domain mm -hmm. and not any of their competitors or any player that is not yet on the market but might enter the market uh, in the future. So why them? And then, as I said, like you know, on later stage um, startups, uh, of course, the traction is, is important, um, especially in terms of growth. Mm -hmm. So looking at, for example, like SaaS startups, SaaS enterprise startups, they should show, be able to show a monthly growth rate of like, 15 to 20%, for example, mm -hmm. and like a 3x minimum kind of annual growth to be on in the top of like the, the really impressive ones um, to, to be outstanding. And then the tech, of course, should also have, as I said, like we, we, we really like companies that have a strong tech USP. And that shouldn't be just something that is built on legacy technology or just plugged together from from vendors so there should be something built in-house mm -hmm. to really have a competitive advantage uh, and a certain degree of own ip yeah and patents and stuff like that that would yeah. definitely help also okay. and then in general something we we also look a lot into is like the market of all like the market size so we invest basically only in startups where the market in general, at least is a billion. Mm -hmm. so, and, and if it's uh, less, uh, we we believe the market is going to be too small. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when starting a business, it probably makes sense to also do a certain kind of market research uh, in which market one is one is playing, and then finding a way to somehow attack a market that is big enough. You said that you you already made a couple of investments. I mean, I mean, I'm just continuing to say you, but when I say you, I say Capital Three Hundred, right? Of course. So, <laughs> um, you said that Capital Three Hundred already made a couple of investments. Um, being on the on the Capital Three Hundred team, did you had an opportunity to see, like, right after the investment, what was like the the first thing that they started doing? Was it like recruiting new people? Um, putting more engineers to work on the product like what was the couple of things that you've seen that happened hiring is most often one of the key things for using funds we also usually want to see a certain hiring plan beforehand um during the during our due diligence process we are asking okay so what kind of key employees they will need to add to the team and then we also try to support with our networks to find someone maybe. A second part of putting funds into, into, into productivity probably are certain kind of marketing initiatives or sales initiatives mm -hmm. to test out certain kind of channels for user acquisition, for example. Yeah. But actually, the, the very first, the very first expenditure usually is the lawyer cost. <laughs> the lawyer, <laughs> paperwork and stuff, and terms and conditions and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, for me, it was a really a bad experience for me. I've had to go through a bad experience to learn that paperwork is super important. So at the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey, uh, you know, I took just a template contract from from the internet, and man, I got burned. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so, so it makes sense to have good advisors and yep. to have good lawyers and good tax advisors. 
and and after that i mean i i went to a, a boutique law shop which is also a friend of mine and um, i mean we just i told him like i need a contract <laughs> a really good one so uh, that was one thing that we, we did yeah um law definitely um you are like no one thing that i've just uh, you, you piqued my interest you said due diligence on startups um and you said since you said that you are doing uh, co-investment with other funds like so you have a better optimized investment strategy um how does the due diligence process go the, do you do you do it does the u.s coin co-investor do it or do you do it together how does that process work usually i think each fund is building their opinion by themselves but at the same time we share materials and mm -hmm. that's also i think a common thing in the venture industry not not only we do it but of course there it's a small world and uh, people try to reference um, by talking to whoever might have some insight into the market and into the business and so on um but we usually do our due diligence first before we even approach a potential um, other fund mm -hmm. because we only want to approach funds once we are confident that we want to invest. Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense for us to approach yeah. anyone if we if we don't uh, if we are not bullish anyways. So we we are doing our due diligence usually, and then we of course offer the other fund to give them insight into the insights we already gain mm -hmm. and then we also do reference calls together and stuff like that okay. um, but dynamics are always a bit different at the end of the day it's a collaborative process that we aim for yeah okay got it do you have like uh for the due diligence part and you know doing the entire data and number crunching do you like use a tool or something that helps you in that process because i've been looking for uh, various tools that help you kind of set the evaluation for the company how do you do the due diligence and all the parts on the tech due diligence and so on do you have or do you know some tools around that i think it's again hard to have uh, basically one tool for 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 everything um because as like tech can be very different um but one thing we're always doing is is reference checks um so reference calls basically with uh, people, so on the one hand, social reference calls, uh, people that worked before with the founders and therefore can, can tell us a bit more about the founders. And uh, also people that are domain experts in the field of the startup. Might it be, let's say, digital health, for example, we, we spoke to doctors um, and physiotherapists and so on to get a better understanding of, of the underlying problem and oh, if nice. the technology can be a solution for tackling the problem um for valuations uh, we of course have certain kind of models we're using on, on on building also market potentials we we calculate usually bottom up and uh, top down getting a different viewpoint on the situation um we look into reports again that there are, there are a certain kind of data hubs you can call them where you can find a lot of mm -hmm. reports um there are different ones out there i mean you have like crunchbase that is a wiki you have deal room you have pitchbook uh, yeah. you have traction you know like there are a number of tools out there um i think everyone can decide on themselves which one they prefer probably each of them has, has their advantage and disadvantages um but in general we we don't have one framework that we are always following but at the end of the day we have certain areas we are covering, like the competition, the tech, the team, um, the traction, the the market, and then we we want to cover all of these. And depending on what kind of startup it is, the the process might differ. Okay, okay. Um, uh, listening to what you said, I mean, this this funny question popped in my mind, and um, I just gotta gotta answer um gotta ask you this and maybe then we're gonna wrap this up i'm, I'm gonna have one more final question before this and um if it was for you to do a startup what kind of startup would it be so if i would have to do a startup right now one 
problem that is out there that I would love to tackle um, is loneliness of people oh, once they reach their like final stages in life, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though my, my parents are still very young, um, my parents are divorced and my mom is living on her own. Mm-hmm. And already now I'm trying to figure out, okay, how, how am I going to help my mom to not feel lonely too much um, during the next 20, 30, 40 years? Um, and my, my grandma, for example, she's a widow. And fortunately, she has a lot of friends. So she's no person who is, who is alone a lot. Um, but still, I'm thinking, okay, what if all her friends pass away before her? Then yeah. who is she going to spend her time with? Who is she going to speak about her problems with? You know, um, And 30% of illnesses of elderly people are to a certain degree caused by loneliness. Oh, like, wow. I didn't knew that. Yeah. So because loneliness leads to... to a very fast degrading process of uh, your physical and mental abilities. That's true. Um, and and therefore, yeah. Yeah. exactly. And uh, so, so basically the, this is a, is a really big problem um, our society is facing and I would love to somehow change it by getting the family members and the loved ones and the neighbors and like the really close friends and so on somehow closer together no matter how far they're how, how far they are um, from each other so that would be a startup i would try to start if i would start a startup that's a that's a and super- now i hope there are like uh, hundreds of listeners <laughs> this is a cool idea and i'm gonna try to tackle the problem of loneliness that would be great if you could like uh, inspire somebody from our listeners and you know just uh, somebody from from the listeners to start a, a startup on that that would be super cool yeah if you start one uh reach out to get out (laughs) (laughs) he can definitely maybe become an advisor uh but um yeah that's that's something i didn't uh, thought about although you listening to you that's in the same i have my parents are in the same position and um you know it's really hard i mean they're not you know tech friendly uh all these gadgets and apps it's hard for them maybe to you know i don't know i'm just saying tinder or stuff like that but i don't think that tinder is for them at that specific age I mean, uh, you know, relationships that you want at that specific age, I'm assuming are more, in a sense, deeper communication based, you know, and enjoying life together. Yeah, it, it also doesn't have to be a romantic relationship, you know, no, it's just no, like, yeah. like you're, you have family usually or very often and uh, maybe you just need to bring the family closer together to to make them feel as a, a, more important part or a more integrated part of the life of uh, the grandchildren and children. Yeah. Yeah. And listening to the, the statistics that you shared, I mean, it kind of makes sense because um, being lonely, kind of your motivation drops in terms of doing whatsoever. I mean, you're, I mean, if you're not motivated enough, you stop, you know, reaching out to people, to friends, going out on walks or whatever. And whenever whatever reaches that state of um, not moving starts to deprecate, like you said, right? So then you have diseases and stuff like that. That's an interesting, interesting approach to <laughs> and problem to tackle. <laughs> um, get out! I one. I have one more question. Going to be an easy question in comparison with what we had so far as a discussion. Um, are you reading a book these days, and uh, which book? Are you reading? If not, what would you recommend as a book to our listeners? I have just finished how to um, uh, never, sorry, it's uh, called Never Split the Difference, how to negotiate as if mm-hmm. your life would be at stake. Um, but I just finished it. And I'm right now considering either starting the ride of my lifetime from Bob Iger, the mm-hmm. ex Disney CEO. Um, or to start reading uh, Psychology of the Masses, I think it's called. Uh, it's like a book from like the early 20th, uh, 20th century. Um, about It's basically like a politics propaganda book. Um, but I'm interested in the topic, so I might start reading that one. I'm mm-hmm. not fully decided yet which one to open first. So this one may never split the difference 
would you recommend it? What was some kind of uh, key, key takeaway from that that you've learned? Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, I think they have some, like the author is uh, bringing up some really handy um, kind of tactics and strategies for negotiation. Um, and at the end of the day, people are always driven by emotions mm -hmm. um, and uh, negotiations are often around numbers. At least that's what people believe. Um, but uh, they're usually something underlying that might uh, shift the whole dynamic of the negotiation mm -hmm. um, and might really end up being a win-win situation. I, I don't know. I mean, I've never um, enjoyed kind of the, the negotiation part because uh, I always got way too much involved uh, emotionally, at least in the early days of my negotiations when I had to negotiate like, you know, salary raises and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a fair balance between re uh, reason and emotional. Yes, totally. Uh, yeah. Gerald, thank you very much for joining today and, um, you know, having this awesome conversation, especially around the um, due diligence part and how you um, kind of tackle that part within startups and what you're looking for. Um, so whoever is listening um, and you think um, Gerald can help you, um, either, you know, having a look over what you're doing, giving you feedback or, you know, even getting Capital 300 interested in your startup, please reach out. Uh, you can find him on LinkedIn. Um, and um, yeah, hopefully we're going to have you soon on the podcast. Yeah, thanks again, Stefan, for inviting me. And yeah, definitely reach out to me via LinkedIn um, or maybe if we see each other at an event uh, at some place in the new normal of the world again, <laughs> just, uh, just approach me and uh, let's have a chat. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for joining and uh, have a great day. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, share and review our podcast because the voice of our community keeps us going forward. Find more episodes and discover different perspectives about tech and business and in our daily life. Thank you.